I am Plant on the Line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. Shauna Paul joins me now. We discuss her recent poetry collection, Blue Gate, which was published in the fall of uh, 2021 and was a finalist for the Dorothy Livesey Poetry Prize at the BC Book Prizes this past September. It's the last book from Mother Tongue Publishing, and uh, we talk about Paul's publisher, Mona Fertig, and how they work together editing this collection. It's a collection of poetry that bears the author's capacity and skill at observation and compassion. We see a writer constantly learning and who is cognizant of uh, what's wrong with the world around us, but who also sees hope all over. It's a book that's uh, rooted in recent years, but also timeless, and that's uh, for good or ill. I'll ask Shauna about the poems in the book, how she views the world, birds, and poetry itself, and how she writes. Shauna Paul is a poet, educator, and community advocate. She completed her MFA in creative writing at UBC. She spent some 23 years at the Shadbolt Center for the Arts, leading uh, creative writing workshops and teaching, something she continues to do. She represented Canada at the UN Commission on uh, the Status of Women in 2006. This is her second book of poetry, her first Roughened in Undercurrent was published by Leaf Press in 2008. Her uh, Twitter handle is at Shauna underscore Paul. Please uh, welcome to the Plant Online program, Shauna Paul. Ms. Paul, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for joining thanks us. Thanks for having me, Joel. Oh, thanks for joining us. This is this is a, a, a great pleasure for me to, to have you on. Um, I'd like to begin with your work. You spent 23 years teaching at Shadbolt. Um, mm-hmm. Where do you teach now? I'm mostly teaching online and um, just now settling into some sort of closer one-on-one mentoring in a kind of um, sort of more community-based kind of way, just making connections with poets that I have taught and others who um, just need uh, some extra guidance. So I have about five circles that are running online and then... um, some other individual poets that I'm working with. This begs the question as someone who is uh, um, not obviously a poet or a writer at all, um, can poetry be taught? Um, I think I would say poetry is a thing that is practiced. Mm. And when I'm working with new poets, I just remind them that language is endemic to us as a species, and so it's pretty hard to suck at it completely. But I think um, for my early students, I recommend that they read and that they begin a writing practice of whatever kind, whether it's a journal or note-taking or whatever, Mm -hmm. and just to try and settle into where language resides in the body and that might be, you know, from a history of storytelling in their experience, or it could be an ancestral way of being that they have inherited, and then maybe, um, you know, there was some breakage in in that storytelling tradition. Um, I think right where we are right now with poetry is that um, while all of us work with form in certain ways, we're all trying to decolonize those sort of rigid rules around mm. what constitutes a poem. And so for me, I think, you know, part of my engagement with poetry has to do with its ability to liberate language and story and song. That's the thing that, uh, as I was reading Blue Gate, that, that struck me 
all along uh, as I was reading it was was there's obviously in you a love of language, a reverence for words. Um, has that always been something that, that um, say, you've had uh, foremost in your mind, even, say, when you were growing up? Um, I don't think... I think I grew up in a very busy, big family, um, but we also lived in a rural um, community. Mm-hmm. Back then, Richmond was actually rural. <laughs> mm. And uh, so... I think it was a combination of the music that happened in our family every day. My mom played piano every day. We sang every day. And when she wasn't playing piano, there was music um, moving through the house. And then also being outside. So we had, you know, in every direction, land and a long way away, but you could still hear it was the river. And so I think that my reverence, um, for language and for trying to articulate the human story comes from music and the beauty of what was natural around me and how close I was and immersed in it all the time. Um, I also come from a family of theologians, and even though I am not a religious person, mm-hmm. um, you know, there was um, ceremony and the word is um, really critical in that context. And although it's a very complicated moment for Christianity, for sure, Sure, um, given the history of our country, I think that having my life um, punctuated by moments of sitting, reading, sharing language, thinking about it, was also present, although I was not really aware of it as a little girl. The other thing that struck me as I was reading the poems in Bluegate were um, uh, when you repeat some of the lines in some of the poems, uh, they come across as, say, uh, prayers or song lyrics even. Um, mm-hmm. so, so that musical influence, I can see that, uh, as you just told me. Um, the, the other thing is when you evoke birds, as you do in a number of poems, I was going to ask you about your your um, uh, relationship with with the outside world because I also found that fascinating. But in particular, when you evoke uh, birds, mm-hmm. uh, I, as the reader, see them as you mm-hmm. paint their images with the words that you use. But the other thing that struck me as I was reading it was that I also heard them, and and that's um, uh, I got the sense that that um, the sense of hearing is something that. Um, you're keenly aware of and that, that you, you work to evoke that in your work. Is, is that a, bit of a correct assumption on my part, sir? Yeah, I think that's a lovely insight, Joe. Thank you. Um, definitely, I'm a sound girl. And, um, you know, when I'm teaching, I, I often invite my students to think about what, what is their primary way of perceiving the world. And for many of us, it's visual, and for me, it just happens to be sound, and um, I'm also, you know, I can see stuff, but sound is the thing that um, opens me the most, and so I think that that's why sound has become um, kind of central in the things that I make. Um, The birds, a part of it um, had to do with 
I also worked in a park. So the Shadbolt Center is is located in Deer Lake Park. Yeah. And there's a lake and there's a great deal of wildlife. Mm. And so whenever you're near it, um, I guess because of, of my rootedness in um, my early childhood in being outside a lot and you know, we also had horses and sheep and stuff in the back and a big garden. So there are sounds that if you're immersed in them, you hear, which other people might not hear, like the sound of gardens growing is something that, you know, we don't talk about a lot, but it's there. And the sounds that animals make when um, dusk falls, for example, and their motions. So all of those things kind of are a part of uh, communities that I'm connected to, let's say. And the birds, also because of how much liberation, I mean, um, some people, I guess, would think about um, the liberation of flight. And, mm, yeah. Um, how inviting that is for all of us who are now you know, living in urban centers and working and trying to balance a creative life and also addressing the kind of environmental catastrophe that that we've created and um, also, again, the history of our country um, around our indigenous folks whose work um, in harmony with the land uh, was much wiser than what we've brought to it. Um, And so... So there's something about not only the sound of the birds, which, you know, music is always something that will be central for me, but also their flight, their liberation. What sort of birds do you see? We're both uh, residents of East Vancouver. The the Mm -hmm. only birds that I seem to see are are crows, and and I work by Maine and Terminal, and I see seagulls a lot. Um, Mm -hmm. Do you see other other kinds of birds where, where you are? Yeah, so I have this little balcony, and right, right, on the edge of the balcony is a giant old cedar tree. So we have sparrows and juncos and uh, occasional goldfinch. Uh, we have a hummingbird that doesn't seem to migrate. So mm. I just saw the hummingbird two days, two mornings ago. Um, definitely the seagulls and the crows. Yeah. Um, we have a pair of, of Cooper's hawks, I think that's what they are, that nest in the lane behind the house, which um, I see. I just saw um, another little hawk this morning. I, I'm going to look it up. I, I don't know exactly what kind of hawk it is. Um, and so, yeah, I think, um, I think one of the things that happened to me during lockdown um, was just a kind of return to paying attention to what's alive around me. And, um, you know, I was reading an article yesterday about um, the fact that we, we don't have just five senses. We have seven senses and that, you know, the wind and the light changing um, also are a part of our sensate experience. And so... Um, when you have time, and often we don't, yeah, but when, yeah. we, when I do have time, um, the practice of paying attention and and trying to consider my own place in the kind of in a kind of ecosystemic way rather than a kind of dominant way as a human in an environment, right? 
yeah. to be a part of rather than um, uh, dominioning over it. Exactly. Yeah, that's the thing that I was thinking about. I was reading it because um, I already mentioned the, the, what I got out of your book was the, the, the sound of it and, and thinking about it. I, I tend to keep very late hours or early mm-hmm. hours. If uh, and in the uh, spring or summer, I, I go to bed about four or five maybe, mm-hmm. and then I can start hearing the crows in the morning. Mm-hmm. And so I, when I start hearing that, then I think oh, it's kind of late now. I should I should be getting to bed as they're starting their day. <laughs> and um, I, I, because it's now quite dark um, in the morning, um, and it's cold and it's winter. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think we're even in winter yet, but I, you know it feels like winter. Yeah, um, that um, I haven't heard that in a while, and so on. Mm-hmm. And as a result, I'm, I'm keeping much longer hours. I didn't get the hit the sack the other day until 5.30. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? And I, <clears throat> just to add to that, we have this beautiful thing that I call magic hour at dusk when the sun's just setting in the west and our deck is mm. facing west. And, you know, in the summertime, that lasts for maybe an hour and a half. There's this beautiful glow that happens. Yeah, yeah. These days it happens for like 12 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> um, and... And it's, you know, it comes up for me that maybe we should just be following the light and that our bodies might be able to relax a little bit and be more alive um, if we could do that. But um, I think the struggle for me is, you know, to move through an unchanging schedule of days and hours without any connection to the environments that we're living in and the communities of creatures and plants that um, that live alongside us, right? Yeah. The, uh, you mentioned that, that uh, moment just as the sun sets. My, my, uh, I work on Industrial Avenue, and mm-hmm. so the window uh, where I sit faces the west. And, and you're right, the last few days there's been beautiful colors, sort of mm-hmm. uh, orange and red and purple all at the same time. And um, in, I think it was last week sometime, th- this swarm of um, of crows would go east that I would see. And, and, and there was one day last week where it was not just the crows, it was the seagulls. And I assume, oh, wow. I assume there, was, there was a dumpster that was open on the street, and I think they were all going there. And then, but but that, yes. that, th- there was that moment where they all said, well, we've got to get out of here. Mm-hmm. Um, not because of uh, people at the dumpster say it's just the time to go east, I guess. And and <laughs> yeah, I always yeah. wonder where they're going. You know, they go to- well, there's a there's a story about those crows, that crow migration that happens every day, and then you'll notice that it doesn't happen, um, or at least not as markedly during nesting season. Mm, um, yeah, but um, somebody told me that they go to the roof of BCIT and they. They roost there in the night, and um, but probably what you're talking about is in fact a dumpster. I was just listening to Carol Watts reading. Um, she's an English poet, and uh, she was reading alongside David Hurd, um, beautiful work. And she's been doing this um, sort of nomadic walk on Blackheath, which is near London, outside uh-huh. of. And um, there's a little pond there, and she said that it's full of garbage and 
because she was returning every day to this pond and paying attention, she found that the garbage was because the crows were bringing the garbage to the pond because they were collecting things and then leaving them in the pond. So it wasn't even human pollution. It was the crows. (laughs) So they're quite wild, tricky creatures the crows yeah they're, they're awfully smart yeah that, mm-hmm. yeah that's mm-hmm. uh th- th- there's a poem in the book um for shirley and joanne and um it, it staggers one as, as one reads it because you you address male violence white entitlement and environmental t- catastrophe all in one poem with with very few words um and i've always said that um I spend more time, say, reading a, a collection of poetry than I do, a, a, you know, any other kind of book, because I, I find that I'm going back and rereading them, uh, mm-hmm. reading the poems, I should say, and and and, but but in this case, I it just I was so, I was obviously moved by what you wrote, but but at the same time, I just marveled at how you managed to get everything in that one poem. Yeah, thank you. Um, I um. For me, those things are connected, and mm-hmm. I think, um, you know, I've worked a long time in community, and and when that happens, um, you know, the violence of capitalism, which we all need to keep ourselves safe within, but but which we also, I think, are coming to understand isn't working for very many people, yep. um, and. And also, I would say individualism, and and um, uh, certainly, you know, we've seen this week with the murders in Winnipeg that, um, you know, just uh, catastrophic levels of violence that go on, and some of them, you know, intergenerational, and and the response of the police chief and I think he was just really being honest mm-hmm. but you know he just said well, well we don't have the resources to search this landfill for these bodies though we think that they are there and um, so there's been a great deal of response around that right yeah. and and I wrote to so I wrote to Mark Miller and the Prime Minister and uh, Jagmeet and, and you know mm-hmm. I just said it's going to be really difficult work as it is, but surely to goodness, it won't be so expensive as to say we don't have resources. You can't leave, you can't knowingly leave bodies in a landfill and then talk about equality or dignity or even community. Yeah. It's just not possible to have those two things together. And I, I'm aware just of the you know, the ripple out of that particular story this week, um, it's both an old story. It's such an old story. And um, and so I guess it's just my experience in working with communities where violence of one sort or another, xenophobias that um, maintain the status quo, um, it's kind of a... I don't know, I guess I'd say kind of marrow knowledge that I have now, yeah. so that's yeah. why that poem could could be as concise as it was, even though, you know, I'd really rather not have to write about those things. 
Yeah, that's the thing. As I was reading the poems in the book, I could place some of them with references that you make in some of the poems that they were written probably in the last year and a half, two years, maybe sometime in the last three years at least. And um, whatever you were talking about, whether it was the environment and, and our relationship to it and, and what we've done to it, or um, the children mm-hmm. in Kamloops, for example, mm-hmm. um, these are subjects that that aren't new and. Yeah. Um, I, I, I don't know, I, I, I guess what, what I kept thinking about is that, you know, that, that, that I hate to think that, that um, years from now someone else is going to be writing sort of the same poems that you're writing. Mm-hmm. I hope not. Yeah. I hope not, Joe. But I think, um, I think one, of the, one of our barriers to change is taking time to learn story. So, for example, with um, the Kamloops children, mm-hmm. um, everybody knew, everybody who had lost a child knew for many, many years that their bodies had not been returned to community in a good way. And it was only when, you know, the community forced an acknowledgement from the general public that it be, it it entered into the mainstream news. Yeah, yeah. And so it gets called a discovery, but it's not actually a discovery. It's an acknowledgement. And I think um, because of the way our news cycles are structured, and because of social media, which is an excellent tool for organizing, and I actually am really interested in technology and the ways in which it can connect us. It's just the speed mm-hmm. and the way in which we need to, you know, to sort of get through a certain number of stories. But but um, what it means is that the depth of the story can't be shared in a good way um, so that learning and understanding and wisdom and change can come. And so I'm very aware of that when I listen to the news. I watched The National the other night. Mm -hmm. You know, there were some stories there that were really problematic just in terms of basic racializing certain communities. And, um, And so then I'm sitting with the question of, okay, do I write to The National and just say, you know, um, your lead story was about a $300,000 contract, which is nothing in the context of this country, yeah. and somebody made a mistake. So why is that the lead story when, you know, four women in Winnipeg have been murdered by the same person? Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, and exactly. so, And so I think, um, again, we're tangled in... Um, doing what we need to do to stay safe within the context of capitalism. And I think, you know, with the CBC, you know, they're very alive to, um, you know, uh, the threat that might Mm -hmm. come if a more conservative government is elected next time. So, you know, all these things. And so I think what we're called to be is courageous. And one thing that helps us or helps me anyway be courageous is to be still and to be curious and to try and get the threads of the story not only the ones that are meaningful to me 
but the ones that might be meaningful to others for whom the story is maybe even more important. Some people say that art shouldn't be political, and, and some of the poems in the book are obviously political. Um, what do you say in response to that? I mean, I, I hope you know. I hope you know where I'm coming from. That I think that they sure. should be, and I think it's a marvelous way to be political, to be courageous at the same time as to, to say commit poetry that uh, challenges and that um, affects people the, the way it does. But um, there's some people that think that, that poems should be about say something beautiful or, or mm-hmm. something pretty or you know not not yeah. something uh, harsh and, and real. Mm-hmm. Well. I have three responses to that. First of all, everything is political. Mm-hmm. Every gesture we make either uh, surrenders to capitalist inequalities or it challenges us. And we're all caught up in it. Um, and, you know, I'm just sending off Christmas presents to my family. And, you know, some of them came from Amazon that I try not to buy things from. But nevertheless, <laughs> yeah. there I am. So it's not... It's not in terms of judgment, Mm -hmm. but I think that for folks who think any piece of art isn't political, uh, reveals a great deal of privilege, which I also share and I also struggle with. It is difficult in the presence of suffering to sit for eight hours and write a poem. It feels selfish, and um, it's particularly hard now, given the pace of the atrocities the extent of them. So that's one thing. Um, The second thing that I always go back to is what Toni Morrison says. And, you know, her novels are unquestionably um, powerful pieces of political literature. Um, And she said, whatever the story, whatever the atrocity, the job of a writer is to make it... um, excruciatingly beautiful, right? Mm. And so I do value beauty, um, but I also value anger and um, sort of sociopolitical indictment. All of these things help us understand one another and ourselves and where we are in this particular moment of history. And I and I do hold that, um, I guess, as a kind of central value. Mm. And it's true that sometimes what we need from a poem is to be blessed so that we can pick ourselves up and carry on. And I think that counts, too. Um, However, um, you know, uh, I think that art opens us and it can be a a bridge to Mm. understanding what is different and language sometimes will take us quite a long way out and beyond our own sort of basic intellectual understandings and in particular poetry can and I think it's important to me that um, that I at least attempt um, to connect the communities that, that I live and work in and the stories of now and the stories of the past that have led us to now yeah, it is incredibly inspiring in some of the in, in some of the works to see sort of the work that you've been doing, in terms of say learning about things that are going on around us, mm-hmm. that um, that that we all have gaps in in terms of our own knowledge, um, yeah. and um, 
it doesn't learning doesn't stop, does it? Because I mean, I know people that are younger than I am, people that are older than I am, than I am, who um, cease all curiosity at a certain point because they think they know everything. And I, I can't yeah. tell you how much it pisses me off because I, 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 I just I, I feel that the, that the older that I get, the, the less I know. Totally, that's my experience too, and I. Um, I just, you know, it's one of my mantras with my students, and this was given to me by Dion Brown, who was one of my teachers at a certain time, and she just said, reading and writing are almost the same thing, and all kinds of reading count toward um, enabling our understandings. And um, so I, I really think curiosity, and I, you know, I worry because... Um, Sometimes curiosity can be like being present. They become sort of catchphrases and they lose their meaning mm, because people yeah. say them without very much commitment. But um, uh, it's true for me, the older I get, the less I know for sure. But when I do um, notice something and make some sort of connection, then that's when I try to write it down. And I do that just on the chance that it might be useful to others, right? Um so it's not any longer, um, you know, I think in our early 20s, we are still figuring ourselves out and how to be in the world. And then later on, we're able to be connected, if we're lucky, to communities that are working for change and for dignity for everybody. And so then the work becomes about what can I add to those voices um, before me and the ones who will come after me um, to say yes, that, um, you know, equality matters, dignity matters, and um, and our ancestors and our future ones um, need to hear that from us. And so it's meant as a, as a generous thing rather than a individualist thing. Right? Yeah, there's, there's a, a lot in the book that, let's say, frightens one or worries one. But mm-hmm. at, at the end of the day, when, when I'm talking to you now, um, I can see that you retain some hope, don't you? Um, I do. Um, I do because um, of, I think, I think it's natural that the body wants to be well. And um, certainly everyone, and especially in urban centers, we're all carrying certain kinds of trauma. We're all carrying certain kinds of struggle. We're all carrying certain kinds of questions that, you know, for, for which there are no easy answers or fixes. And, um, and yet we carry on. And um, so that's why... I've been thinking more recently about a kind of panoptic uh, trust in the heart of humanity to keep lifting the carpet under which atrocities keep getting swept so that we can look like we're in control so people feel safe enough, but also to keep lifting it and keep singing what's under there and and also what's beyond us. I think one of the things that was happening for me in this book was that both my parents and someone very close to me had passed in a in quite a short space of time. Uh-huh. And 
And so, you know, when you're near someone who is in decline and moving into the next realm, whatever it is, um, you become much less attached to your own identity and your own ego in the context of time. And um, also I have, you know, two daughters and a grandchild who allow me some perspective into a future which is different than mine. Mm-hmm. You know, my children's lives have been different than mine, and and my grandchild is, again, a, a whole new set of songs and questions. And so um, I think those two things also, um, while they maybe didn't frame the work, they relocated me or perhaps relocated my way of seeing or considering the, com- the communities that I'm connected to. And, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, you, you write in your uh, the acknowledgments of, of the book that your publisher, our friend uh, Mona Furtick, um, provide, provided, quote, vivid and joyful engagement with your poems. Um, what, what does that look like and, and, and what does that mean for a writer? Well, first of all, that Mona is a poet. To work with a publisher who is also a poet is uh, supreme because every time she read through and she came back with some feedback, it meant that I knew she got it. So (laughs) that was really great because you never know. You're writing away and you think it makes sense to you, but you can't be sure that anybody else is going to get it. Mona got everything, so that that's that was one of the beautiful things. She's also um, a person. This is, um, you know, this is for me. This is a soft book, but for other people, I'm hearing that it's it's um, difficult in some places and heavy in some places. And Mona's joy and her also experience with social justice allowed her to keep lifting it. Um, into um, beauty, and um, I didn't feel from any of her, you know, throughout our engagement, we went through the text like maybe about eight or ten times together, mm-hmm. and um, I never felt any questions about the intensity or um, the density of the concerns, right? She knew, she got it, right? So there was that. And then just her experience with putting a book together, you know, pretty soon there's somebody who has cover art and somebody else who's doing the the layout for us, and then there's a copy editor, and these are things I didn't have to do anything about. They were just all there. So suddenly there's a community conversation growing and circling around the text, and then people, you know, who read for me and did blurbs at the back of the book, um, which is another real affirmation for a poet that, okay, three other poets read this and they got it too, so it must be making some amount of sense. So that was reassuring. Um, but also, um, I think, you know, in engaging with Mona, just the, the length of her service to the literary communities in particular on the West Coast, but across the country, also to visual artists. um, And just really, she has a kind of community heart that is so vivid and so joyful, and stuff just happens whenever she's around. And 
So then I could relax and really be in a conversation of trust as well as, you know, she really knows her her work. She really knows what she's doing. So um, it it meant that I could, you know, really have companioning as the book came into a material thing. Yeah, um, it, it, this is reportedly her her, her final book, but I, I think mm-hmm. there's there's more for her in store. I don't I, I don't think. Um, as you and Rob Taylor were talking in an interview that you did about the book, um, mm-hmm. retirement is not something that one would would um, think. Uh, Can't quite imagine it. No, I don't think it'll, <laughs> I don't think it'll take for her, will it? No, I don't think so. Yeah. And so I look forward to what's coming for her. I'm happy that she can rest yeah, a little bit now, exactly. and um, but also that for her own work. Um, I know I have been very held up by the poems that Mona has made, and uh, I look forward to more of those. But also, um, you know, I'm imagining that she'll be at the center of gatherings between and amongst poets and other artists for some time to come. And I've always thought that that she was grossly under-recognized in this province, and uh, hopefully that... um uh, gets addressed soon, sooner rather than later. Yes, yeah, so let's stay open to that because I'd really like to see the story of her work become more well known. There was a beautiful article in Geist a few years ago mm-hmm. that acknowledged the the literary storefront. She has a book that um, Mother Tongue published, yeah. which is also worth reading for everybody. But also just to celebrate that in community with, um, you know, the West Coast has a great deal of vitality, particularly in its poetry, but across the board in terms of um, art and culture. And I think Mona has been really central to uh, the life in that and the continuity as well. So I'm hopeful that that will be recognized across time. Absolutely. Um, Shauna, um, our time has just whizzed by. Um, Mm -hmm. I could talk all afternoon with you. I shared a cab with you recently. And mm-hmm. enjoyed the conversation uh, then, and as do I now. And, and uh, um, congratulations on, on this book. It's it's a beautiful book in in, in a lot of parts. It it is challenging in some parts, but I I enjoyed the work that I had to do as as, as a reader because I think it's necessary work uh, mm-hmm. as someone who lives here, someone who um, uh, reads, and someone who um, needs to think about the future. And and so uh, I appreciate your time and the book. Thanks for this. Thank you so much for having me, Joe. I really appreciate your doing this. The book is called Blue Gate. It's from Mother Tongue Publishing. It's uh, author Shauna Paul. Join me on the line from here in Vancouver. I'm Joseph Plunder.